You're listening to It's Not All Academic, a podcast that takes you into the minds and hearts of innovators and problem solvers who are reshaping our world. I'm your host, Nadine Shadia, and in this series, I'll bring you inspiring stories and thought-provoking conversations with experts from various fields. Grab your headphones and get ready to open your ears to a world beyond academia. Hello and welcome to the podcast series, It's Not All Academic. We're recording from Ghana country, Adelaide, South Australia. Now, if you're interested to learn about innovation ecosystems, the role of government in innovation and technology strategy, how to influence government and how to help shape their decisions and policy around science, tech and innovation, then listen in because today I'm joined by a very special guest, Suhit Anantala. Suhit has over 20 years experience in strategy, innovation and design, and he's done that in support of large multinational companies, federal and state governments, not-for-profits, startups and SMEs. Suhit, welcome. Uh, thanks, Nadim. Great to be here. Really appreciate you inviting me. Let's jump into it. What underpins innovation for you? Yeah, great question. I think to start off, I think innovation is such a is a word that's so misunderstood right now that it's hard to use it well. I've moved away from using it on my daily practice, to be really frank, just because of everybody has a different mental model. So we don't know what they're actually thinking. Yeah. So saying that, I guess innovation for me is actually doing things differently than what you've done before. Um, a real definition could be about thinking difference between invention and innovation, because I think that's where we get a bit of a mistake about what that is. So when you create something totally new, say a new molecule or a new idea, a new product, a new technology, um, that's actually invention. When you actually take it to market, or when I say market, not just as a product itself, it could mm. be that when it actually reaches to the end user and it creates something out of it, that's innovation. And I think that's kind of the big distinction that we need to be really talking about. And for me, just to build on that, really, there's some element of exchange of value at that point at the commercial and translation end. So Correct. that's really where the innovation comes to life is through some exchange of value. It's exchange of value, but value doesn't have to be money. Mm. Uh, so for example, it could be social innovation where you're creating something that creates value for a human being. It could be environmental innovation. You make the trees better. Yeah. It could be any of those things. So value, yes, but value doesn't equate dollars. dollars. Yeah. Um, and so if you if you use value as a framework, absolutely right, mm -hmm. that's when innovation happens. Yeah. yeah. And I guess for people listening in, maybe the most common type of innovation they'd be used to is product innovation. So stuff that's underpinned by technology. Yep. And we've already touched on it a little bit, but there are many different forms of innovation. And for example, there can be innovation in services, but also things like business model innovation, which is a, a huge area of specialty for you. Do you want to talk a bit about that one? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. I think that's a very important aspect, again, of what is innovation, but also what kinds of innovation. And the reason that's actually people know it when they see it, but we just focus on product innovation a lot. Mm. Uh, but innovation can come in many different guises. In fact, in the current world, because products are so easy to create, yep. look at what's happening with AI, it's actually the non-product innovation that makes the difference. Yep. Okay? I mean, look at ChatGPT, right? The current rage. What is their real innovation? Two things I would say. One, the interface. I can actually type uh, a prompt, prompt command. Yeah. We now have a prompt injuring, but just think about it. I'm just chatting, right? Mm -hmm. That's number one. So it's an interface, which is a UI UX. Yeah. The second is actually part of the business model innovation, which is when do you go to market? 
So if you look at the entire spectrum of AI right now, um, Google was extremely uncomfortable going to market early because they wanted to get it right. OpenAI said, I don't care. I'm a startup. Yeah. Okay. I'm already we'll take the gamble. I'll take the gamble. I'm telling you right now, it's going to be hallucinating. We're going to get things wrong. It will have its own biases, but hey, let's go and have a go. So this, this idea of when do you go to market? When do you do it? And the, I think the biggest part of this process is like opening, opening up your mind to test with real users, which is what OpenAI has been doing, yeah. right? OpenAI has been like testing. So they're saying, actually, this is all a big beta process. Yeah. And by working with real customers, we can actually figure out. That's why as part of using something like OpenAI's ChatGPT, part of the condition of that is that you actually agree to provide feedback on what you found useful, what you didn't, so they can shape it and tweak it into a more polished version. Exactly. And now let's build on OpenAI, right? Now OpenAI has now that the UI UX innovation, they've done a go-to-market innovation, which is why they've like, you know, one of the fastest growing products of all time. And then they've done business model innovation where they've actually got a fantastic uh, partnership with uh, Microsoft. Yep. Microsoft has invested $10 billion in OpenAI, which is enabling now Microsoft to change their business model to more AI-driven mm. without creating the actual AI. And then OpenAI is using $10 billion, but then creating now API and ChatGPT Plus and you know, DALI for imaging, yep. Whisper AI for voice transcription, or just, just is building on all these models. And they are powering every potential single AI startup and AI yeah. approach in the world by, by making money through that process. Okay. Through iterations of business model offerings, through yeah. API integration and the like. Yes. So, so you just take uh, GPT as a mm. transformer, as a, as a basic technology, and now you can see the layers of addition. Yeah. And all of those are innovations. And I think what is very important is that we miss out on the go-to-market and business model innovation. Mm. We don't think about it too much. Yeah. But that's where the maximum value exchange happens and also value capture happens. Okay. And this is a very important thing. You know, um, we can go into deep into commercialization, but actually the whole point of this exercise is where does value capture happen? Yeah. Because that's when the dollars that were put in at the start start to show up and somebody captures the value from the exchange. And you know what's also interesting about that is the market, the consumer, the user has to be educated enough to receive or use or adopt that. So adoption comes into the equation as well, right? Exactly, which is why um, ChatGPT's interface and go-to-market strategy is innovation. Right. Mm. So now ChatGPT's real competitive advantage is not that the original model was better. Yeah. It was that they have the most amount of users and feedback, which automatically means that they'll win the game. Yeah. It doesn't really matter whether they were good at the start. They'll be good now and they'll be good in the future because they have got the most interaction of anyone. So the more data gets fed in, the more they can improve the AI. Yeah. This is fascinating. And I just query now, like, is it possible for a Google to swoop in and take market share off them by some fancy, shiny, polished offering? Look, this is a great question, Nadim. This goes back to the heart of what is advantage, right? Um, so Google has a model, right? BARD. BARD is available. Mm. That's exactly like ChatGPT. I've tried to use it. I just don't find it fascinating. I'm also now stuck on ChatGPT, so I don't want to change. <laughs> so this is a fascinating thing. I love Google search, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But actually, Google has missed the boat in terms of uh, getting people engaged on this. The ChatGPT seems to be the engagement model now. But not just me using it, right? 
So you use it, other people use it. Now there's some people talk about how to use the prompts on it. Then other people are building API models based on ChatGPT. Suddenly it's everywhere. So, so the fascinating thing with technology is that seems to be like the biggest play is always the biggest and nobody can touch it. And suddenly yeah. there's a new technology and a small startup wins that game. Yeah. It's just, just fascinating to watch that. Now, the second more thing is interesting. I'm not saying there'll never be one. I mean, uh, Facebook's Llama, um, Llama and Llama 2 now coming up. It's going to be fascinating open source model. Yeah. Uh, maybe people will start using that. You can train that AI better. But, you know, most people don't care about all that. They want to pay $20 a month and just use ChatGPT plus GPT-4. Exactly. And you're good I'm with one that. of those. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm good with that. Like, why yeah. the hell do I have to exactly. know, break my head around anything else? But I think where um, Google and Microsoft will play is going to be a different game. Okay. I think they're going to supercharge their current products with AI, which is a different game from what ChatGPT is playing. ChatGPT doesn't have any new pro uh, of new current products. Yeah. They're building their current products, right? So I think the Duet AI that Google announced, um, Copilot from Microsoft, this is where I think the opportunity space will be mm. for them to, and this is again goes back to business model innovation. Would you say OpenAI's approach was more an incremental innovation versus a radical transformative type innovation? Uh, well, it depends on the eye of the beholder. <laughs> okay. Right? If you ask the AI gurus, they'll say the actual GPT 3v3.5 is an incremental AI innovation yep. based on what's been happening for 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. But if you ask the user, this is a transformative, yeah. radical innovation. Great point. Yeah, it's really based on your, yeah. your background and your experience. And what you're experiencing. Yeah. Yes, I I'm, I'm absolutely agree with the AI gurus. Mm. The actual model may not be more not smarter that. than what they've worked no, on. I know. But as a lay user, I've never had access to AI. So for me, access to AI, or as Peter Thiel would call zero to one, right? Yeah. Not having no access to AI to having access to AI is radical. Mm. Whether that AI itself is easy, smart, maybe incremental, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. And I think that's the, this is again goes back to the heart of what is product innovation, what is business model innovation, what is technology innovation. Yeah. So really what I wanted to touch on from there was that any person who sees themselves as an innovator, um, that could be someone who's a researcher, yep. usually the, yep. the audience of this podcast are from that kind of field, um, they might be saying to themselves, well, I'm not making anything that's considered you know fancy gadget or widget or new tech or new IP but from what we've discussed and what we know it could be a, a process efficiency that saves a user time in their day that is actually the innovation part for which they gain a whole bunch of value and would pay handsomely for yep um, or it could be something that's a sustainability gain that maybe it's part of a traditional product or service but it helps mitigate or minimize the negative effects on the environment of that original innovation. Yep. So I really want my listeners to think about what they're doing and, and not have to worry about it being radical transformation um, or underpinned by you know electronics and mechanics and that it, it can be quite simple things that are highly valued out in the real world. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point, right? So So innovation is multifaceted. And going back to the previous conversation, who decides what is radical? The, the, the biggest fault of people are inventing stuff, mm. creating new stuff is actually imagining that this could be more important than that. No, actually nobody knows. Yeah. Till you hit the real world, you actually don't know what is the transformative effect of something 
sometimes can take longer than what we've imagined. Mm. So, I mean, let's look at, I know it's, a, I'll go back to another complex example, but look at NVIDIA chips, okay? It was created for gamers. Yeah. Now it's the hottest chip in the world for AI. Nobody could predict that. Like this idea that you actually know what will be radical is actually extremely hard. Yeah. So that's number one. I just want to say that we can't predict the future, sure. right? So let's not worry about whether it's radical or not. Like that's, that's I just want to make it easy. Besides the point, yeah. Because that, that's beside the point because you know, nobody knows what will become radical. The second thing is, it has to be unique. That's not number one. Distinctiveness and uniqueness is different from radical. And I, th I would say that anybody who's working on something unique and distinctive absolutely will have value in the mm -hmm. future. Yeah. So that's number one. Like that, that's a good question to ask yourself. Am I doing something that's unique yeah. and distinctive? These are good pre-qualifying questions when you're deciding around IP whether something's patentable as well. Very similar kind of question set. Yeah. Um, and then the question becomes is unique to whom? Distinctive in what sense? Mm -hmm. And then you actually start to touch base the real world. And um, you know, because if you really want to spend some time thinking about where you would spend your next few years creating something, it's also worthwhile understanding who will benefit from it. Yeah, and that's where the that's where the value potentially is of bringing some of that conversation early. I'm not talking about business models here. I'm not talking about anything. I'm just saying, if you do succeed in your endeavor, where is the benefit to whom in what context? Yeah. I've been involved with a couple of programs um, that really help uh, someone who's got an invention, got a technology, understand who it is will be at the receiving end of that. That program was and is called CSIRO ON. Yep. They've got the prime and the accelerator. I've been through that with a couple of our research groups. That program is a really good customer discovery and validation program. There's probably many like this around the world, but it really puts the inventor, the innovator in the shoes of and listening to the end users and hearing what the problems are firsthand. Um, and it actually allows them to test a lot of their hypotheses about the thing they're developing to see whether it's maybe needs some tweaks. It could be feature-oriented adjustments and engineering-based switches and adjustments that are made to it where really that's not what's needed. It needs to solve the underlying problem for the user. So, you know, I'd always encourage and I've always worked with researchers and innovators hand-in-hand through these sorts of programs to get a better understanding of the problems that they're trying to solve. That's perfect. I think the ON program does a great job. I, I totally fully support that program. In fact, I've uh, been using a version of that from 20, 2009, 10. Yeah. You know, we use the business model canvas and the lean canvas, Steve Blank's custom development model, lean yep. startup, all of those things in various ways across the board. And I can walk through some examples. But I think that is actually the way to think through, which is, who is the customer? What do they value? Generally, our first attempt at that is wrong. Like by definition, yeah. we will get that wrong on our first attempt. So it's the scientific method in a different way. Yeah. If I use the language of your researchers, you know, it's just the scientific method. However, you actually need to go through the scientific method a bit more quickly, a bit more rough. Okay. Yeah. Iteration. You iterate a bit up. faster. Yep. You go through a hypothesis and, you know, uh, guesstimates and yep. testing faster. And and your hypothesis not will be as scientifically valid as yeah. you would do in a lab. But they are still hypotheses. Yes. Would this ex-customer use wine in a Z way? Yeah. That's a hypothesis. 
And that's exactly what those sorts of programs do is they get you to basically test those hypotheses through a series of conversations, which either validate or, or disqualify whether it's true or not. Yes. On that, I think we need to go beyond conversations. How so? How do you propose that they do that? Yeah. So Without, say, getting to a minimum viable product, say, before before there's anything physical in hand? Yes, the great question. But actually, we can create something physical in hand without it being physical in hand, okay? This is where design comes. So I've spent a lot of time with co-design and business model design, but a key part of design is, is prototyping. So minimum viable product comes from the lean startup world, but actually design comes from prototyping. Now, I'll walk you through an example that everyone knows. Two examples, right? One is building a house, other is making a car. You know, anybody who designs a car never makes a car, right? You actually design it on a piece of paper. You sketch it out. You make a clay model. Mm. And by the time you actually make some prototypes, then you're actually making some real stuff. Nobody makes a car. Same way in a house. Like, you know, you design a house on paper. You talk to the people. You kind of make things happen. You look at colors. Nobody goes and builds a house. So what is the minimum viable product here? I think that's where the problem is. But if you think of this as a prototyping process, my first prototype is actually my paper design. The second prototype is actually on the computer. The third prototype is actually now I'm trying to go and see some houses and I can pick a room there or like I like the design of the kitchen. Now you're actually physically seeing stuff. Yeah. So you can actually recreate part of the experience of the future today by prototyping. That's what prototyping is really good at. It's not really creating the product itself. It's creating spaces to have a conversation about what the product might do for your customer. And then you have a conversation. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is humans actually don't know what they want. So even though there is a real conversation about we have to talk to stakeholders, we have to do ethnography as design, or we have to do customer development process as a hypothesis mechanism in a lean startup. Any of these languages, they were all valid, and I'm not saying we should talk. Of course, we should talk. But even the people that you're talking to genuinely actually sometimes don't know what they want. Yeah. Because as the inventor of something, you know more than them what's possible. Yeah. Customers are very good at telling you what the problem can be. They're very bad at creating solutions. Yeah. So you have to be very careful about what conversation you're having. Um, Steve Jobs always used to say that. Like, you know, if I ask a customer, what is a better phone? Nobody would have created the iPhone. Yeah. So we have to be very careful what we're doing. But however, you can create a mock-up of an iPhone and test it with a customer. I'm just trying to think back as well to, you know, that analogy they talk about when horse and car, if I had to ask people what, was needed that would have said a, a fast, faster, horse. faster horse was that henry ford maybe yeah, yeah, i think right like yeah, yes. <laughs> so it's it's sort of that's from so long ago but that still rings true today that the customer the consumer doesn't always know what what the solutions are yeah. because as a researcher or as an inventor as a technologist you have a imagination about the future and you want to create that future so we have to be careful about what do we ask the customers in terms of the challenge mm. now there is a there is a partial conversation here and which is different from technology when you actually get into go to markets marketing and business model you should not ask customers you should actually work with them and you co-create with them yeah because then they are very good at it because now they're touching and feeling it they are again very good at it so you just have to kind of work differently at different stages but prototyping going back to that enables you to talk about that future that you can't touch yeah 
with the customer and then they can actually feel and explore i'll give you a small anecdote so the guy who created the palm phone which was like the first kind of handphone like in the, in, in the 90s uh, he basically created a wooden block the size of the phone that you would want a, a wooden stylus and just ca- carried it in, in his pocket all day so he tested the idea and the concept of a handheld device by actually creating a handheld prototype of made by wood nothing to do with the electronics it wasn't functional Correct. and it was probably to see cuz the big proportion of this design element is to do with people's behavior human behavior right yes and the idea that you can't predict behavior you can't even predict your behavior yeah so you how do you simulate behavior in an artificial space i love that and that's the whole point yeah, of this exercise yeah 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 before you spend any time on the engineering the design the circuitry Correct. You're just going out and seeing whether maybe the first objection is I don't like something big and bulky in my pocket. Correct. When right. So no matter how good the tech is. Yes. Right. Imagine it's you just spent four years on the tech and nobody wants to keep it in your 100%, pocket. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I'm hearing you loud and clear. So here, that's that's a really great analogy. I love that. All right. So I want to jump into employment and experience and vocation work you've had. It gave me on LinkedIn an option to click to expand, to show all 30 experiences. And I had to be I had to sit there and work out and cherry pick a, a little bit of the themes that we talk about today yeah. around that. But yeah. in a nutshell, there's a bunch of departmental work for federal and state government. And there's also a whole heap of project and freelance work for your not-for-profits, SMEs, um, big corporations as well. On the latter, so do you want to talk a little bit about some of, some of the projects and programs there? Yeah, so... Um there were two chunks of major project work one is being a partner in business models inc so bmi is a global strategy design firm headquartered in amsterdam um i with a couple of my other colleagues michael and ben we were the partners for australia new zealand so that gave me an option to work in a range of projects and before that for about the same amount of time 4 to 5 years i was the director of business innovation at uh, the australian center for social innovation which yep. is based in adelaide which does actually use design and business models for social innovation. So those are like the two big chunks of kind of my projects work where it comes from and there's a bunch of bits and pieces that I can add. But what those two chunks gave me was a real uh, insight into working with a range of organizations, mm. you know, nationally, globally, in all sorts of context. Everything from how do you help a startup to, you know, how do you help Boeing? and and that can feel like this is strange how do you work from everything from one to another but then when you think when you break it down to the conversation we've just had which is innovation and business model innovation it's actually the same problem yeah. in sitting in different contexts okay so is this where you talk a little bit about commonality between whether you're doing it for a corporation an SME a startup there are some consistencies in terms of yes consistencies in terms of if you want to do innovation <laughs> Yep. Of course, there are differences in all kinds Resources of things, right? Resources and, and other things. But. but they all we all have to innovate. If you all have to innovate, you whether you have a you have a technology, or you have a other kind of capability. Say you're Boeing, you have a existing set of customers. Yep. Um, if you're not for profit, you're solving problems for a specific kind of people that you're working with, and you want to solve things better. Um, if you're an MNC, uh, you know, then you have a specific product that you want to take it to new markets. So the, all of them have like something that they want to do. Mm. In a startup world, it's slightly different. You're still trying to find customers. 
Um, so it's 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 a different context, but actually the same thinking approach. So um, I created the uh, the social uh, incubator with the city of Adelaide, where we actually helped. How do you create a social enterprise? Right. And really using the same lean startup, the Cyro on program kind of approaches, but for social enterprise. Um, I took the same model and worked with Boeing. So Boeing has uh, Horizon X, which is their uh, kind of innovation arm. They asked me to kind of help them create an internal innovation program where they can help their staff to create new products. Now, if I treat every staff member or every team as a startup, mm. it's no different to the program that you would run in City of Adelaide, okay. social enterprise. Now you are, I work with the not-for-profits, like I work with the Royal Society of the Blind, fantastic uh, uh, organization from Adelaide. We actually won a Good Design Award, yeah. uh, which is a very prestigious award uh, on business design. And we really were looking for how do you create new products and services for people who are blind or you know, nearing blindness mm -hmm. And, and really going deep into understanding their needs and creating new solutions and new business models. So at one level, they look all different. At another level, they're all the same. Of course, you have to tweak to the context, but there's a core approach and methodology that just stretches all these boundaries. What I'm hearing is that having key stakeholders at the table discussing things from the outset is what's crucial here. So the customer, perhaps an industry partner, the innovator, and bringing in elements of different disciplines. So not only the technical aspects, but design aspects as well. And all these things, they mean you don't get to the end of a project or program and you've missed the mark because you haven't considered a really important yeah. element of that. Correct. I totally nailed it. So it's, it's how do you bring all of them together, but how many times do you bring them together and how much power do you give them mm. to change what you're doing? All of these are important because there's a tendency to believe that as the inventor or the designer, I know everything. Yeah. Okay? For sure. Yeah. And, 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 and this is what I mean by power. It's like how much do you, it's not just sitting on the table, how much mm. do you allow their thoughts to pervade your thoughts? Yeah. How much do you allow their ideas to actually commingle with your ideas? And these are mindset stuff. This is not totally. methodology, tools, yep. technology. This is just a mindset conversation. So that's a super important uh, thing to do. It's probably just we don't allow enough um, opportunities for those conversations and for those connections and collisions to happen. Correct. Everything's very siloed, right? Correct. And, and, and absolutely. So you almost have to make extra effort to do it. Yeah. Um, once I work with a client, I'll not name, and uh, we ask them, okay, you've got this business model. Uh, let's go and talk to some customers. Okay, which market research firm should I call? <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. You are talking to customers. Yeah. Not some market research firms. What do you mean? I'm like, I'm going to help you work through. And there's, of course, some nice ways to talk. There's some right things to do, you know, biases and all that. So there's, there's some logic and theory. You just don't go and talk randomly. But still... I said, you should go and talk. So we trained them to go and talk. You will not believe it was five conversations which was enough to break down their hypothesis that the hypothesis was wrong. Wow. It didn't take like long. Yeah. Five conversations. That was it. That was it. And that was it not in my head. That was it in their head. Yeah. They were convinced that they were wrong. And no amount of market research will give you that confidence. It was five conversations. Yeah. Um, and so this is really important that we stretch our comfort level to do this. And you should never outsource this work. Super important principle. 
yeah, I'd love to see that as a bit of a guiding principle for researchers. I mean, that's the language I try and use every day in my business development role is to have the right people around the room, to have the right type of conversations, to have the right mindset going into that. Yeah. And there just needs to be more. And hopefully through podcasts like this, we're amplifying the effort of that type of activity. Correct. Amplifying. I think absolutely you're doing that. I think the more people listen to different versions of the same thing. Yeah. It will trigger different kinds of behavior. For sure. Yeah. For sure. See that you had a role as SA president of the SA chapter for the Australia India Business Council. Yes. And a couple of the key initiatives around that or the real guiding principles were around better economic engagement, bilateral trade, investment relations between India and Australia. And then more recently, there was the Aus-India Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement. Yes. Um, A market snapshot of India. We've got a population of 1.42 billion in 2022. Mm-hmm. The same year, GDP growth was 6.8%. And the two-way trade with Australia is valued at 46 billion. What does India and the Indian subcontinent offer in terms of new ideas, innovators, workforce? I have a very strong views on this, as you can imagine. Uh, as an Indian, as an Australian, you know, both the countries are really dear to me. And I've also spent a lot of time, not just as AIBC president, but also doing work in India in my previous lives. So my first statement is we need to move beyond cricket, curry, and the common <laughs> Okay? That's great. But we need to move towards trade, technology, and talent. That's kind of the key thing. Yeah. Because I think there's a perceptional challenge here. Right? India just put a lander on the moon. Mm. Yeah. I saw that last week. Yeah. Yeah. So we are talking about a country which is has a lot of challenges, but also extremely uh, good at a few things, but also changing rapidly. Yeah. So just as an example, right, India has something called a United Payment Interface, UPI. So you and I can connect our bank accounts to our phone. There's a bunch of apps. You and I can just send money to each other instantly through UPI, mm-hmm. no cost. Okay. No visa, no Not like a Western Union type arrangement? Nothing. Just phone number okay. and it's instant. Wow. You can send anything from one rupee, which is like not even a cent, yep. to uh, you know thousands of dollars instantly. Wow! Like you go to India and it's like you live like in a different world. Like yeah. what the hell happened? Here? <laughs> so you can't take fintech startups from Australia to India because the fintech startup would say you'll be so behind the game; it's not a joke. Okay, so that's one. Just domain. as an example yeah, of like yeah. you know, but at the same time, I think India has been doing amazing work around space in terms of rockets and spin. But Australian capability around um, small scale satellites, you know, data analytics, yep. understanding how space data comes and what do we do with it, great combination. Mm. Because we don't send satellites to the moon, but we're very good at what data that comes back and how do we work yeah. with it. So I think we have to really think about very differently about what this means and how we work on this. Which industries do you think Australia and India have the most complementarity around? So I think space is a big one. Okay. I think defense would be another one. Um, Agri is very interesting. Indian agri markets are closed, but they're opening up. The the current ECTA agreement is fantastic. It's one of a kind agreement that India has ever done. India just doesn't do these bilateral free trade agreements. Okay. Yeah. This is very unique. It's a big political achievement. It is a really big setting stone towards the future. I've met the Consul General and others in India, from in Australia, from India, and they all believe this is one of the most momentous achievements they've ever done. Big Australia. milestone then. Big milestone. And big opportunities around There's it, right? so Huge. many opportunities. Mm. And I think we need to, as Australians, start opening up our mind towards For what's sure. possible. 
I would actually say that a lot of Austrian SMEs and Adelaide SMEs have very unique technology. But what they don't have is markets here. Mm. So we have to really open up to go there. And the trade to India is very simple. There are like, I don't know, 40,000 Indians in Adelaide. <laughs> you know, 700,000 in the country. Yep. Find a couple of them, you know, bring them into your conversation. Their WhatsApp groups are enough to start understanding the market. Like, it is not complex. Mm. Like, we think about this as a very complex conversation. But if if you find someone who's from the country, who's living here, they will tell you in three seconds how to go about doing That's this. That's brilliant, yeah. Is India known as, like, is the strength in the workforce or there's some really strong innovation and, and science capability there as well? And I guess maybe leaning more towards health and medical type innovations? Because There's a whole range of things, right? So India has a very strong pharma capability. Yep. Uh, for example, India is one of the few countries that created a COVID vaccine. India didn't import its COVID vaccine. Right. Self-sufficient. So India not only has its own COVID vaccine, it used to as AstraZeneca one, but produced that for the whole world. Right. And exported that for to a lot of countries, especially in the global south. So that's just an example of what's what's happened recently. Um, the IT technology space is crazy. Mm. If you go to Bangalore, Hyderabad, Pune, so in Hyderabad where I come from, there's one street, long street, but you'll have Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft. Headquartered all there. there. It's yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. So we are talking about a very different you know, ball game. There's about three to 5,000 tech companies, global companies mm. in Bangalore, in mm. one city. So there's a lot of tremendous stuff happening there that is not obvious from the outside if you look at GDP and per capita. That's, those are almost the wrong metrics. Okay. So I'll give you this framework, which I think is useful for everyone. So when I say Europe, would you equate the Nordic countries with the same as the, say, Italians and the Greeks? No, normally there's this delineation that's in, in my mind, whether yeah. it's rightly or wrongly. Yeah. Wrongly, but they're there. But they're still Europeans. Yep. But you don't say, I didn't, you don't just sell to Europe randomly. So India is a union of states. India is three times Europe in terms of population. Yeah. And India states are like Europe. One state of India, Uttar Pradesh, is like 120 million people. Yeah. You know, you cannot treat India as one country. You have to treat it as a union of states. Each state has its own specialities, characteristics, cultural strengths, and challenges. Yeah. So when you go to market to India, you have to market to states. And you have to understand them at the state level, like you would when you go to Europe. Yeah. Nobody markets to Europe. You market to, to countries in Europe and understand yeah. them. So that's the first kind of big framework change. Yeah. That's really good insight, uh, Suhid. I think um, it's really easy to lump India and the Indian subcontinent, countries like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, into the same sort of basket as yeah. a market. But geographically, demographically, all, all those factors need to be considered. So I, I'm really excited to see what sorts of things come from this trade cooperation. And I, I agree. I'm, I'm the same. I think this is a great foundational yeah. uh, starting point. And I hope in the next 10, 15 years, we start, start to, to see realize some real that. strengths. Yeah. Maybe some of the best complementarity comes from, if you're talking about those tech giants being there in place and headquartered there, a lot of the analytical machine learning, uh, algorithm work and AI work that we we can do um, is a really good fit It's a that. good fit. And then actually all our research is really good to say, figure out how yeah. we commercialize in India because we are very good at research. Right. 
you know, how do we take that to commercialization in India? How do we partner with big companies there? How do we partner with startups there? Um, the money and the fast move is just a next level yeah. there. Like it's not the same at all. So, so you won't have a problem for market and money and people, which are generally the challenges in our country here. Yeah. But we have very good base technology, some amazing technology breakthroughs. So we need to kind of figure out, rather than trying to go to Europe and US to commercialize, mm. how do we commercialize in India? Another aspect of your experience, Suhit, has been working for different departmental groups. So a couple of that I've got listed here, Families and Communities, uh, EPA, and more currently, the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Do you want to give us a bit of a background to the sort of work you do there? Because this is really where the innovation strategies and technology strategies for uh, government yep. really come to the fore. So Absolutely. So currently, um, I'm the Director of Policy and System Reform in Department of Premium Cabinet. Um, just before that, I was the Director of Technology Strategy. But I sit in Strategy and Policy, which was a newly created uh, team of a few years back. And the idea was to think about more medium to long-term strategy for the government. And how do you think differently? Basically, try to imagine what are the new policy-making capabilities of the future? And how do you do that? So how do you actually create better policy? I think that's the that's a very important question to ask. Um, and one of the ways we have been doing is to think about, if you think about the challenges that we face as a country, as a state, as a world, they're getting more wicked. We all know this word wicked yeah. problems, but basically these are intractable problems, which basically means the problem is not clear, the solution is not clear. I think it's a very important distinction. You know, there, uh, Ronald Heifetz from the Harvard Business School uh, talks about adaptive leadership. He talks about three kinds of problems. Type one are problems which are, you know the problem, mm. you know the solution, you just implement it, okay? Type two is, you know the problem, you don't know what the solution is and you have to do some adaptive work on the solution. Take it to it. Yep. Type three is, you don't know what the problem is, you yep. don't know what the solution is, you have to do adaptive work both ways. Okay. Okay? And it's kind of wicked problems between two and three and definitely three. Right. So just that, I think that's important in people's mind when we say, what is wicked, right? What is intractable? Yeah. That's what we mean. Like we actually don't know what even we are solving. So that's come from some work in 1973 from the background reading I did on this, Wicked Problems, um, where there's no right or wrong answers. Um, there's pro probably many explanations for wicked problems. Um, usually they're a symptom of another problem. So there's Correct. many layers to them Correct. as well. The solutions to wicked problems are not true or false, good or bad. This is how complex those types of challenges are. So for the state of South Australia, what do we identify as the, the wicked problems here? So it's not just state of South Australia. I think you can identify wicked problems in so many ways, right? Homelessness is a good example. You know, health is a good example. Housing is another example. But then you can also talk about the energy transition as an example. Um, AI is another example. Yep. You know, uh, uh, how do we create uh, talent and careers for the future and build educational capabilities and other... All of these are, they are actually all wicked because you and I can sit down and talk for two hours and we may not agree on what the problem is. For sure. And you bring three more people and we'll all have three more versions, right? And that's the nature of the problem. Not that, the, not that we're all wrong, just that nobody's right. Yeah. And that's, so that, that's the starting point of this conversation. But the, the beauty is when you know that, you approach it very differently. So, so that's one example. The other thing that we are doing is, uh, what we are doing is, is basically building a mission approach to policymaking. So missions come from um, the idea that governments should actually not just think about uh, growth as in 
as you rightly said, oh, India has grown 6.8%. It's not that. It's like, what is the directionality of the growth? Yeah. Not just the quantity the of number. growth. Yeah. And then how do we solve more complex, more ambitious challenges? So if you look at the moon moon chart, mm-hmm. which the word comes from, you know, sending the man to the moon, kind of experience in the 1960s. Um, so missions have been framed by a lady called Mariana Mazzucchito. She's an economist. And the idea is that we can think differently about how government does innovation. So we are now defined three missions for our state. It's in the economic statement released by the premier uh, recently. And those missions are capitalized on the green transition, uh, which of course is all about the opportunity we see in in renewables, in, in greening and in critical minerals, or all, all the things that South Us is actually good at too. Um, the second is partner of choice and insecure world. What's happening in the geopolitics arena? What's happening in the defense, AI space, cybersecurity, technology? And how does that transfer back into food, energy, water, yeah. data? And the third one is how do you build South Australia's talent for the future? Mm-hmm. These are the three missions we have taken up. And what we are trying to do is to create um, a cross-government agency, cross-sectoral, and then working with unis and citizens and and businesses How do we as a state galvanize our strengths towards this directionality? So that's kind of where we're starting in the journey and I'm leading the mission secretariat to kickstart that process. So we've just started that a few months back, but that's where we are going. Yeah. And how are you engaging with academic and research type institutions? Yeah. So right now, what we are trying to first do is to figure out what is our first directionality and stance towards these problems inside the government. So about multiple agencies are working together. We're just at the cusp of going and working with UNIs. Yeah. So we're just starting to invite a few key okay. research leaders and others into our conversations next month and really thinking about where is the UNIs going, where are we going, and then how do we align? I love that. And I, I think that's a really opportune time for me to talk about there's an intimidation factor, I think, a lot of researchers and academics about working with government. Mm-hmm. They see the size of it. There's many departments and they often sit there and think, how am I going to get any traction or a groundswell of support for whatever it is that I do? And one of the things that I found useful is to try and reframe the perception of government and their role in your research. So if if it turns out that you're working on stuff that's quite blue sky, foundational phases of research... The government is a facil- facilitator of that type of activity through things like NH and MRC grants, ARC discovery programs, and things like that. So they will, they will help facilitate and fund and get those things going. If you're at the stage where it's more translational uh, and you know there's maybe IP being developed, there's startups and spin-outs coming off of the work, yep. the government is an enabler of that type of work. So you know, through IP Australia, through the business.gov, um, the various hubs and precincts and yep. things that the government, state government supports, especially. And another group I work with, Department for Trade and Investment as yes. well, about showcasing our capability in our own backyard. So it's an enabler from that perspective. Then at the really pointy end, the implementation stages, you know, really viewing the government as a partner in that process. So things like the CRCs um, from the Department of Industry, Science and Resources and ARC linkages where the money there is supporting 
collaborative work between industry and academic and research institutions yes. for a specific translated outcome and a commercial commercial type endeavor. So just by simply reframing the mindset, it probably gives you a bit of the emotional freedom and energy you need to at least approach government. And most universities would have a tech transfer office or a business yes, development office of where you've got people that can go in and have business level conversations on behalf of you and the work you do. So I think that's a, that. those three things are really nice way to put it. Um, couple of things, right? Government is not a monolith. There's 120,000 uh, people who work in government in South Australia. We don't know all of us, each other, right? So I think we need to kind of, first of all, like think of these as different organizations and this different humans. Yeah. And everybody's different. Some people are more open to conversation. Some people are less open. There's nothing to do with government itself. Like I'm saying, it's the same in the uni. It's same in, so it's really, first of all, like trying to break that myth that government is one. There's no government is one, yeah. right? There's multiple agencies, multiple people, and we're just humans as anybody else. The second thing is, as you would have tech transfer offices, there are also, not every government agency is designed to engage with the outside world. Or different agents are designed to engage in different ways. Yes. You know, energy and mining work, focus on energy and mining. You know, uh, Department of Innovation and, and Science would focus on, and where, where all the stuff you're talking about, research, startups, all of that. Persa would work, uh, work focus on, you know, agri and regional and wine. So mm. first, even just knowing where you sit and who is actually yeah. is a starting point. But if I kind of take it to the higher level, if I can, how can researchers, universities and government, then working with industry and startups and everything, how do we work towards a common future? And this is a very important thing. It's not that research and government can or cannot work. It's actually, I feel like we all have different goals and different timelines and different views about the future. Not that it's bad, we all should have that because plurality is very important. However, how can we all have some directionality that we can go towards? And I think that can supercharge all of our work. And I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I don't have an answer, right? I think this is a great opportunity to say this in the podcast, not like we have an answer, but no. we are open to this conversation, right? The beauty of academia and researchers and all the smart people is they have a view about technology and the future, which you know most of us wouldn't have no yeah. clue. We sit in the more practical sense of how do you kind of make this into a policy or a strategy and how do you bring investors or how do you connect the dots? So it's really about the previous conversation we had about, you know, connecting all those dots. This is the same thing, but at the strategic level, what are the three things that South Australia should be really good at by 2030? Like I'm talking about foundational capability. Yep. Stuff that makes it a draw card for people to to flock here, for yeah, companies for to set up. For startups, for yep. companies, for everyone, yeah. right? Now, those are things that we can have a chat together. Yeah. There's nothing stopping government and unis and others to work together and say, hey, we believe these are the foundational capabilities we currently have. This is where the world is going. These are the yeah. big problems of the world. In this big problems of the world, these are three things that we can really do well. I think those kind of things are really useful to kind yeah. of connect and make a call on that. So about 12 to 15 months ago, there was a university research commercialization action plan. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the key principles around that, I'll just draw out a couple of them. One is that it should be focused on specific priorities, so directed towards national priorities, really based around industry demand and where research capability is strong, that they should be industry-led, so 
entrepreneurs and companies are pulling ideas through the innovation pipeline rather than the opposite direction where it's an academic um, exercise technology push out. And I really like that framing, right? Um, the other one is having a well-established collaboration between universities and industry. Yep. And a lot of the, the washout from all of that were things like Australia's Economic Accelerator, mm-hmm. 1.6 billion, the Trailblazer Universities Program, national industry PhD programs where yes. people can spend a portion of their scholarship in industry for, I think, 60 days, I think it is, yep. solving uh you know, a, a real-world problem or answering a research question in, in, in the, industry. In industry, yeah. That's kind of the the funding and the initiatives that underpin what we've just talked about. What is it at policy and architecture and strategy level that the state government is doing to help that flourish? I'll just caveat the point that, as I just said, state government is so many different things. So there are other people who are more qualified to comment on some of this. However, state government does support uh, researchers on so many levels. For example, increase is a good example. State government has put in millions of dollars on increase. Yeah. So anybody who's working on increase, yeah. you know, this is state government is actually supporting that conversation, mm-hmm. of course, with national funding too. Um, if you take at the biomedical precinct and the support there is a good example. On the other side, I think what we're trying to do at innovation level from Tonsley and Lot 14 is the opposite side of research. But actually, that's the market pull and the industry pull and the innovation pull that actually supports this conversation. Um, And I think coming back to commercialization, and this is an important thing, I think it's a good question to ask, what is the role of state government? Because at one level, people say, oh, government is not good at innovation, we shouldn't be doing anything. Mm. But then what is the role of, how do we bring all of this together? And I think the role is this. I think the role is that governments should be able to say, what are the big challenges for the state, the country and the world that we care about? And then we should be able to work with a range of people to solve them. Yeah, That could mean that government may be a partner, as you rightly said, at that part of the equation. That could be the first customer. That could be a partner in helping solve something. But I feel like there's a larger storytelling process about how does this all this mesh together really well? Because what government can and will do is different from what researchers can do. And I think one of the big challenges that I've struggled to understand in Adelaide um, and I've lived here for 18 years, is yep. why are we so amazing at really groundbreaking stuff, right? We've been able to invest as government or as researchers or universities on some of the most groundbreaking technologies, but it never translates into, I guess, the value capture I've talked about yeah. at the start. Yeah. How does that kind of commercialization stuff come back to South Australia and feed the next generation of researchers and startups? Mm. And you know, that loop is really where I think we all have to figure out how we do that better. You're right. It's something we need to get a lot better yeah. at. Yeah. And I think in the last few years, I've seen a change. I'm sure as you've seen, Nadim, we've got, we are getting mm. more money from interstate and global investors. For sure. Uh, I think we're getting a new kind of people who are ready to kind of question the status quo and change it. Uh, I think the the, the conversation is, the, I feel the conversation, the problem is the TRL because I don't know if you've ever seen the IRL. <laughs> Investment readiness. Investment readiness level, yep. And the idea is that you do TRL, but you also do IRL. And that actually is where where you kind of connect the dots between technology to product, to product to customer to business model. And I think if we can do those two things well together, I think that's where the opportunity space can be a bit more. Um, I also think that we we have to focus on, the other framing I would say is, 
uh, and this goes back to an example I had. I was sitting as an Australian in India, in Australia-India business conversation. Mm. It was really funny because I was in, I'm originally from India, but I'm, I was representing Australia in India. <laughs> and then the Australians in the room were asking, I don't see any problems in Australia. I don't know what to do. Mm. And I think it's this interesting dilemma I had. I said, okay, you guys are in India trying to help India, which is great. Really appreciate what you're doing. But do you see the problems in Australia? And they're like, no. So what has happened is that we've become so complex that you can go to India and say, oh, that village doesn't have electricity. We'll do something in solar. Yep. The issues are profound and obvious, right? Obvious. Here it's not. Yep. So we need to just a bit of introspection and see what are the problems that we have that are actually also global problems. Yeah. I think if we start with that conversation and say, if we solve a problem for X here, that is actually a global challenge. Mm. Then actually we already have a global market on day one. And, and no government can provide support for global markets. But I think what we can do is how do you enable that technology and that product to succeed locally? locally. And then it's a global opportunity. Because that's because we are we are 1.6 million people. Like we'll never be the global opportunity, mm. right? But we've always talked about being the perfect test bed and all that. But yeah. but you know, I'll, you know, the other day we went through McDonald's and there was like um cheese. So there was a new product that came that my daughter loved, and it's gone. Okay. Right? And it's gone because we are one of the 10 testbed cities for marketing for big companies. Right. Well, right? So that's that's not going to be available on any other menu now. They tried it here. They So I don't know if it'll come back or not, but right. they tried here, right? <laughs> so pizzas and McDonald's mm. and lots of products get tried in Adelaide because we're not too small to not try and fail. And it's okay if the market doesn't like it. Yeah. And we're not too big. So it's not like, you know, it distorts the market. Yeah. So McDonald's had this, it's gone. My my younger one was like almost in tears. She loved it. <laughs> and I'm like, I was trying to explain, of course, too hard to explain nine year old that sure. we had a test bed market. <laughs> but 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 that goes to the heart of who we are. And I think if we can all figure out and work out how can we not just test McDonald's products more, we can actually test all kinds of products more for a global audience. I think there's something there about how Adelaide can place itself. This is a really good segue into what I wanted to talk about next, which just to really wrap up the show, which was this state, this city, Adelaide, and the pieces that are starting to move together around ecosystem. Yes. Um, we're seeing the innovation districts, the Lot 14s, Tonsley we talked about as well. Those There's a space agency, there's yes. Stone and Chalk, there's a whole bunch of things. If the listeners want to explore the ecosystem here, one of the resources they can use to do that is uh, Deal Room Dash. Uh, and on it, you can have a look at SMEs and startups. You can look at investment opportunities, um, exits. You can divvy it up by uh, field or industry. And it's also got a really, really neat investment heat map. So you can see where the, the money has been sort yeah, of funneled into. Yeah, it's a great website. Yep. Yeah. For you, Sahit, what is the competitive advantage in the city of Adelaide, do you think? What is it about this city that will be a draw card for innovation and entrepreneurship? So if you ask me 10 years back, it would be a very different conversation, right? Because now innovation and entrepreneurship can happen anywhere. So the question that we should be asking is, what's stopping us from doing? Because there was a time when you have to, in fact, people are leaving Silicon Valley, the, the real hotbed of innovation, mm. because nobody wants to live there. Just to name it, and I know people know it, we are a great city to live. I'm not saying that's enough for innovation entrepreneurship, but we have to accept the fact that we're an amazing city. Yeah. You know, I have a saying, 
two people don't like Adelaide. Two kinds of people. People who have never left Adelaide mm. and people who have never been to Adelaide. For sure. All the people I talked to interested, oh, Adelaide is this and that. Have you ever been to Adelaide? No. How do you know? Yeah. So, so there's a perception challenge that we have to solve, of course. But as a city, we have all the ingredients. I think there's a cultural challenge. Mm. And I, I always ask the question, why couldn't have we made Uber when Uber was there? Uber as a starting point, if you think about the first Uber app, it was not a technological no. breakthrough. So, like, so what is the breakthrough in Uber? I mean, there's a lot of negative things in Uber, but I'm just giving an example of mm. like a, a, what it takes. And the breakthrough in Uber was that Travis was able to go and break rules in every city in the world yeah. and change the local rules of how taxis are run. That is the innovation. The innovation is not technology. It's not that fancy, is it? It's a group of users and consumers, a group of providers, yeah, and so there's a, a critical mass of each so that come together. So he had the chatspa to go and say, yeah. hey, users, support me. Let's change the loss of the mm. land because the loss of the land is stopping innovation. That was what he did, really. So when you say that, I think the key, I guess, is there's a cultural context that we have to talk about. And it's the cultural change that's required for us to be really doing innovation entrepreneurship. Yeah. We have amazing spaces. It's a great place to live. Education is fantastic. We have all the ingredients. Money is Money is actually, it, it, there's no real money exchange. You can literally pitch to a Silicon Valley investor from here. From here. What Flavia has done is yeah. an example of how... how she's, example. Yeah. yeah. So I think this old idea that we are not ready is not true. We are ready. Mm. But there's a cultural challenge. Yeah. How do you get more Flavias of the world? How do you get more people like uh, Benjamin from my Kickstarter? Yeah. You know, how do you bring all these different talents into Adelaide and change the culture a bit? Mm. I think that's the potential gap. Yeah. You're right. I think the lifestyle extends to um, the way the city is laid out as well. So for someone with a family and, and wanting to get from one side of town to the other, you can, on the same day, you can be at the beach. You can also go to the hills and a yes. winery, right? That same kind of layout and, and ease of getting around in the city works for, if I look at just North Terrace, all the way from Port Road and the precinct there, Adelaide Biomed City, you've yep. got hospitals, research precincts, the new uh, proton therapy, yep. um, all the universities queued yep. up in a row, um, and then campuses <laughs> and lot 14. With one tram, you could lit literally traverse all the different stakeholders of innovation and entrepreneurship and inventorship. If you want to. If you want to. How many people have worked between Biomed City and lot 14? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's not a lot. And this is the point. You know, how many interactions have happened on North Terrace, even though it's possible? Yeah. So we have the two degrees of separation, the proximity. Are we actually utilizing it to our strength? Definitely not. Definitely not. And I think if I just think from a bit of a selfish perspective, but a university merger, which is on the table at the moment. Yes. And the sorts of things where and I'm trying to pitch for and and discuss going forward is to really allow and have a space, a physical space, where industry, academia, different levels of government, um, even consumers and patients get to come together and be part of a invention and innovation journey. Great. That would be yeah. like a utopia for me. And, and they're all on the same street. That's right. <laughs> so I'd love to see that uh, eventuate in, in the new world in a couple of years' time. But um, Again, like I think it comes down to, and I appreciate what you're saying about state government, I think the role there is to articulate 
two or three core things we want to be known for and trade off of as a yes. as, as a, a capability and yes. a state. Um, and you know, my feelings around that are a lot of it is around data intelligence is sure. is being one thing. Um, you know, maybe that's the thing that will lure big pharma and med tech and big energy companies here is 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 more the analytics and artificial intelligence and machine learning that can be applied to those respective fields. Yeah, I think you're right. I think this is the this is the conversation to have. Yeah. And I think we'll definitely reach out to more people to have that. Because any company in the world can come to Adelaide if you have the real uniqueness. Yeah. Let's go back to the original conversation, unique and distinctive. What are those unique and distinctive things that we can do? that are valuable to the world. It's the same question that a researcher should be asking that a state should be asking. It's actually no different. And if you can answer those questions, which I think data intelligence is a great point, Nadeem, especially around health. You know, our almost static population is actually a benefit yeah. because we have long trend data For sure. that most people don't have. And then, you know, data is the new oil, data is the new AI, data is the new gold, everything, right? But the only point I would make is I think we have not figured out the business models yet. Because what I don't want is our data to be sold together as a one-off thing. How do you create- Commoditized, yes. basically. So how do you create the space mm. where our data is is given at the right time, at the right moment, yep. and utilized, and then the rewards are shared back to our citizens Yes. so that they have a choice in terms of when their data goes out, and they also have a choice in taking value capture yep. back. You know, we need to move this from a con transactional conversation to a relationship. Yeah. And we need to give choice to our citizens about their data and showcase the value of that at the same time, but provide rewards back to the risk. This yeah. is where the business model conversation comes yeah. up for me. Is how do you design better business models that enable better risk and reward sharing yeah. and create a space? Because I think everybody's realized the value of data. And DTI is at the forefront of this conversation. And there are good people in DTI who can talk to it. But this is the forefront of where government, universities, and citizens can have a conversation and see what is the kind of data that we want to give out yep. and how do we actually ensure privacy, ethics, and value capture. Yeah, for sure. You're speaking my language, Sahit. That's, um, I think we both want the same thing for the state. And you know, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. If I was to sum up what we've talked about today for the listeners, um, we've heard that state government is pro-business. Um, there's really important role in articulating the core capability of the state and the sorts of things we want to be known for and invested in as a state. We've talked about collaboration efforts on things that are wicked problems that have multi-facets and dimensions and levels. And it's been also good to hear from you about your, your journey working with small companies, large companies, not-for-profits, and the fact that a lot of commonality exists in terms of innovation in each of those scenarios. So really want to thank you for joining me. Um, it's been a really great conversation. Thanks, Nadeem. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time to reach out and then giving me the opportunity to share my thoughts. And, you know, your research and your questions have been really uh, insightful and authentic. So really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to It's Not All Academic on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to spread the word. Together, let's open our eyes to the incredible world of applied innovation. <laughs>